People used to say that American workers were too conservative, too backwards, too ignorant, too racist, too whatever to fight back against capitalism. And yet, here we are. Over the last three weeks, we've seen the willingness of hundreds of thousands of people to brave brutal police repression and even the threat of military intervention. This shows the enormous power of the working class once it starts to move. Never be a socialist country. Attitudes are changing towards socialism. We believe the only solution is the establishment of a workers' government on a socialist program. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Socialist Revolution podcast. My name is John Peterson, I'm the editor of Socialist Revolution magazine, the official publication of the U.S. section of the International Marxist Tendency. You can visit our website at socialistrevolution.org. Each week we feature contributions and discussions on current events, history, and theory from a Marxist class struggle perspective, featuring revolutionary socialists from around the country and around the world. Over the last few weeks, the U.S. has come closer to an all-out revolutionary upheaval than at any other time in living memory, even reaching insurrectionary levels in many cities, for example, with the burning down of the 3rd Police Precinct in Minneapolis. Three weeks after the murder of George Floyd by police, the mass movement this tragic and horrific event sparked refuses to back down. Some 1,600 American cities, suburbs, and even small towns have now seen protests. This dwarfs the scope and breadth of the Occupy movement, or really anything else we've ever seen in this country. In addition, hundreds of solidarity mobilizations have been held around the world, including gigantic protests in places like Germany and Austria. This elemental movement of ordinary workers, and above all of the youth, has had a profound life and consciousness-changing impact on tens of millions of people. It represents a historic tipping point, a perfect storm that has converged with the devastating economic disaster, the catastrophe of COVID-19, and the 2020 presidential elections. Who could have possibly seen anything like this coming? As incredible and inspiring as this movement is, however, it didn't come out of nowhere. It expresses generations of pent-up anger and discontent. And while no one could have predicted this precise combination of events, back in the spring of 2016 in our U.S. Perspectives document, we wrote the following. Quote, Truly mass struggles have been few and far between in the recent period, though this too will inevitably change. Such struggles tend to begin as pushback against the whip of reactionary attacks. 
Anti-immigrant legislation was the straw that broke the camel's back for immigrant workers, leading to a mass movement in 2006. Occupy Wall Street began as a reaction to the polarization of wealth and the financial crisis and was inspired by the Arab Revolution and the 2011 events in Wisconsin. The Arab Revolution began in response to the police in Tunisia repressing Mohamed Bouazizi, a young university graduate reduced to becoming a street vendor. Wisconsin began with Governor Walker's vicious attack on public sector workers. Black Lives Matter began in reaction to racist killings. Although these movements may sometimes win a few minor reforms, in and of themselves they are incapable of resolving the problems they seek to address. All such problems are woven into the very fabric of class society. Although it is running out of room for maneuver, the system is still flexible enough that it can offer small concessions that do not too adversely affect its bottom line. By letting off some steam, the class struggle can be derailed into the dead end of the courts, lobbyists, and the Democratic Party. Nonetheless, even small victories can increase the confidence of many people newly drawn into struggle. Appetite comes with eating. We cannot predict which sparks will lead to mass movements, but society is full of combustible material and there are many potential sparks. On the basis of experience, growing numbers will come to realize that nothing fundamental has changed and that something far more transformative is required. The disparate efforts to change society will have a layering effect on consciousness, which will eventually reach a tipping point. Over time, the streams of struggle will tend to converge in one form or another, eventually merging into a raging river of revolutionary class struggle. End quote. This is precisely what we're seeing today, the beginning of the beginning of a process that will lead inexorably to a revolutionary situation right here in the belly of the beast. For years, Americans have watched from afar as waves of revolution swept Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and Europe. Many people used to literally ask us whether there was something special in the water in those places. But we explained that when you have a worldwide economic system, you also get worldwide economic crises, worldwide class struggle, and ultimately worldwide revolution. We explained that revolutions don't respect borders, that the working class learns from its collective experience across borders, and above all, that the interests of the workers are fundamentally the same no matter where they were born, no matter what language they speak, what religion they may or may not practice, the color of their skin, their gender, or any other marker of the amazing diversity of our species. We also explained that the interests of the workers and the capitalists are diametrically opposed and that working class independence and working class unity must be fought for at all costs. We cannot trust the representatives of an enemy class to defend our interests. The workers can depend only on our own forces, strength, and organization. So who can now deny that these processes have now arrived to this country? Not long ago, most people had written off or even mocked the idea of socialism, of communism, of revolution. Most people, including many who consider themselves on the left, had written off the working class as a force for transforming society. Remember, up until a few months ago, we were living through the longest economic expansion in U.S. history, and we were told that economic crises were a thing of the past and that Marxism was, Marxism was dead and buried. The power of Marxist theory is that it allows us to look beyond the surface appearance of things, to unravel the contradictory processes churning in the depths of society, and to anticipate the broad strokes of events in order to participate in a way that can fundamentally alter the course of history. As Leon Trotsky put it, theory gives us the advantage of foresight over astonishment. After centuries of a one-sided civil war against black people in America, no one could have predicted that this particular racist murder would be the straw that broke the camel's back. But it was. 
As George Floyd's six-year-old daughter Jana said, Daddy changed the world. You're damned right he did. We live in an epoch of crisis, of revolution, of counter-revolution, and sharp and sudden changes are to be expected. In fact, they're inevitable. They're an important, inevitable aspect of the dialectical process of history, as necessity is again and again expressed through what appear to be accidents. Although George Floyd's death was no accident, this movement was, in effect, an accident waiting to happen. Because it's not only about George Floyd. It's also about Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Emmett Till, Nat Turner, and tens of thousands of other little abuses, lynchings, and injustices accumulated over the centuries. And this is not ancient history. Just a few days ago, on June 10th, Robert Fuller, a young black man, was found lynched, hanging from a tree in Palmdale, California, near the City Hall. So this movement is about bringing an end to the militarized reign of police terror over millions of people right here in the U.S., the so-called land of the free, not to mention the billions of humans living under the dark shadow of U.S. imperialism around the world. Just to put the scale of the carnage in the perspective, during the 18 years of the U.S. war in Afghanistan, more than twice as many black people were killed by police in the U.S. than American soldiers were killed in combat in the war. Millions of Americans have said, enough is enough. We're no longer going to stand aside as our friends, family, co-workers, and loved ones are treated like subhumans simply because of the color of their skin or the kind of work they do or their accent or their sexuality or anything else. And while not all workers suffer racist violence directly, we are all being suffocated by the economic crisis and the pandemic, both of which are functions of this profit-driven system. More, of the, more than a quarter of the U.S. labor force has now claimed unemployment. That's over 42 million people. Millions cannot pay the rent and stand to lose their homes or apartments. So don't believe the hype about the economic recovery. The jobs that are coming back are more precarious than ever, not to mention that you have to risk dying from coronavirus in order to go to work. And even if we had 100% employment and halfway decent wages and working conditions, as long as society is divided into capitalists and workers, there will be exploitation and oppression, even if it is somehow kinder and gentler. The scope and scale of this movement has really shaken the capitalist class to its core. Under the pressure of the economic collapse and the mobilized masses, the U.S. ruling class is now more divided than at any time since the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction. They're not sure how best to proceed. Should they use more carrots or more sticks? The problem with both of these options, from their perspective, is that there aren't enough of either of them to go around. After all, what happens when the masses lose their fear of the most advanced and militarized police in the world? What happens when the ruling class is so deeply divided that even the acting Secretary of Defense, along with many other high-ranking military officials, both active duty and retired, contradict Trump publicly and effect refuse to allow him to send in the regular army to quell the protests? This after Trump threatens, quote, total domination and a violent military crackdown, proclaiming that, quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. In the end, after a relative handful of protesters got a little too close for comfort, he was forced to scurry like a rat into an underground bunker beneath the White House. The implications of this show of weakness, indecision, and cowardice by the world's most powerful human will have worldwide repercussions. As for the Democrats, they're desperate to derail the movement and to get the masses off the streets. They've resorted to a classic maneuver, come out in favor of the movement and its demands, then twist those demands beyond all recognition and empty them of any revolutionary content. 
But despite the lack of an organization, mass party, or leadership, the movement has started to find its voice and is organically coalescing around demands such as defund the police or abolish the police. Now, for the majority of the protesters, this means that they think that the police cannot be reformed but have to be removed altogether. Millions of people know what they're against, but spontaneity of the movement, which is both its strength and potentially its fatal weakness, means that most protesters aren't entirely clear about what should replace this hated status quo. This has provided the ruling class with the opening they were looking for. In response to these demands, a handful of major cities and states have come out in favor of small concessions, for example, modestly cutting their enormously bloated police budgets or banning the use of chokeholds by police. For its part, the mass media has come out to assure everyone that the real meaning of the demand to defund the police doesn't actually mean abolishing the police, but rather a few tweaks here and there and a rethinking of public safety. At the head of this campaign is the Democratic Party-dominated Minneapolis City Council, where after presiding over a deadly reign of police terror for decades, they've suddenly seen the light and are on board with what they call dismantling the Minneapolis Police Department. But the council has provided no real details as to what this would mean. And let's be clear, they haven't actually passed any legislation to this effect. They merely made a public declaration of intent. In the same breath, they praised the current chief of police and tempered expectations by making it clear that even modest changes would take years to implement. This is a classic bait-and-switch maneuver intended to confuse and divert the movement into safe channels. So what role do the police play under capitalism? And what will it take to abolish this institution? To understand the real nature of the state and of policing, we'll have to go back in time a few hundred thousand years. Homo sapiens sapiens have lived in societies without classes or the state for more than 95% of the time we have existed as a species on this planet. Life may have not always been idyllic, but broadly speaking, people had to work together in a cooperative manner to survive, and they did so without the need for prisons or special repressive bodies standing above the rest of society. Over the millennia, labor productivity rose and an increasingly complex division of labor developed as humans extended their mastery over nature. At a certain stage, due to a variety of contingent and convergent factors, society was divided along class lines. In a class society, an exploiting minority at the top lives off the labor of those at the bottom. In order to defend the power, wealth, and privileges of the ruling minority, the institution known as the state evolved. The great Marxist Friedrich Engels explained that in essence, the state is bodies of armed men in defense of the property interests of the ruling class. Under capitalism, this includes a vast bureaucracy, the courts, prisons, police, and the military. All of this exists to maintain law and order, that is, bourgeois law and bourgeois order. This means that the state defends and perpetuates a society in which the capitalist class owns the means of production, that is to say, they own the key productive levers of the economy. In the U.S. today, just 500 corporations account for roughly two-thirds of GDP with nearly $14 trillion in annual revenues and over $1 trillion just in profits. And although the majority of these riches go to stuff the already bursting pockets of the top 1%, the workers are the real wealth creators of society as it is their labor expended upon nature which is the source of all value. But the rule of law isn't the only tool used to maintain the division between the billionaires and the working class. The ruling class has created many other divisions among the workers. Urban versus rural, white collar versus blue collar, skilled versus unskilled, women versus men, immigrant versus native born. 
And due to the especially poisonous legacy of slavery, and given the country's immigrant melting pot past and present, one of the biggest divisions pushed by American capitalism is race and skin color. The U.S. ruling class has long understood that if the exploited are busy fighting each other, they can more easily maintain power. Jay Gould, one of the robber barons of the Gilded Age of U.S. capitalism, once bragged that he could hire one half of the working class to kill the other half. The divide and rule tactic has been used by the U.S. ruling class since long before the American Revolution. Today, both major political parties use this tactic in different ways, and both of them stand united in defending capitalism and all the misery and inequality that flows from it. They understand that there is no way a tiny minority can exploit a large minority without armed bodies to enforce their rule. This is especially true when living conditions for the majority are already bad and deteriorating fast. To maintain the status quo and to make an example of all those who question or act against this obscene setup, the full repressive force of the state is brought to bear on this or that part of the population, sometimes selectively, sometimes indiscriminately. There's a vast web of law enforcement agencies in the U.S., from the ATF to the FBI, the U.S. Marshals, Secret Service, and hundreds of state, county, and municipal bodies, and then some. In fact, as of 2018, there were nearly 690,000 full-time law enforcement officers employed in the U.S. So hypothetically, even if a city were to eliminate its city police force, the state or the county police could move in, or new agencies with different names and uniforms could be created to carry out policing functions. This is exactly what happened in the case of Camden, New Jersey. The National Guard could also be called in, and when push comes to shove, even the active duty military could be called in under the Insurrection Act of 1807. So how can we actually abolish the police? How can we have a world that doesn't require police in the first place? Well, in order to stop the racist terror of the capitalist state, Marxists believe that the working class must have its own party, its own government, and its own self-defense forces. This may not be quick and easy, but there's no other way forward. Because history shows that all meaningful reforms are a byproduct of revolution or the threat of revolution. As long as the ruling class remains in power, any reforms won by the masses will always be limited in nature and in danger of being rolled back. In the final analysis, racism and the police are symptomatic ills of a deeper social disease, the historic impasse of the capitalist system, which has exhausted any potential for promoting general human progress. Private ownership of the means of production has become incompatible with the well-being of the majority. This is the root cause for the wave of social upheavals that has swept the world in recent years, the driving force that is propelling every country towards a socialist revolution, including the U.S. A month ago, or so, this would have seemed like an outlandish exaggeration. Sure, polls have shown for the last few years that millions of Americans, including the overwhelming majority of young people, support socialism, and that many of them are even open to revolution and even communism. But this movement has given us an incredible hint of what a revolution in the U.S. would look like, not in polling numbers, but in practice, on the streets. And just think about this. The vast majority of the population has not yet participated in these protests. The labor movement has not thrown its organized battalions into the struggle. It's not called and unleashed that ultimate weapon of the working class, the all-out general strike. And yet despite this, despite the coronavirus and the fact that a lot of people haven't participated because of fears over social distancing, 
The state apparatus has been totally shaken. The ruling class is confused and disunited and confidence in the institutions of the system are at all time lows. It's an amazing fact that 54% of all Americans polled agreed with the burning down of the third police precinct in Minneapolis. 59% of voters said they're more troubled by George Floyd's death and the actions of police than by the protests, even when they have turned violent. By degrees, millions of Americans are coming to understand that private appropriation of the socially produced surplus wealth of society and the need to defend that wealth and the power it confers through overwhelming force, intimidation, incarceration, and the terrorization of entire populations, that that is the basis of capitalist rule. Understandably, many ordinary people think that the police are a necessary evil in a world full of criminals, poverty, and inequality. But the real criminals are the big capitalists who play with the lives of millions of people just to make an extra buck. Petty crime is, in the main, a result of a society divided into classes. And in a world of artificial, profit-driven scarcity, people will do whatever they need to in order to survive and to feed their families. Furthermore, under capitalism, a system in which people are treated like commodities, extreme alienation leads to distorted relations between humans. In a socialist world, in which all the necessaries of life and much more are available to all, interpersonal relations will flourish on a truly human basis and petty crime will melt away along with the society that engenders it in the first place. It's also worth noting that during socialism, that transitional period between capitalism and classless, stateless communism, the workers in power will need some way of ensuring the safety and security of the general public. However, these bodies would serve in the interests of the majority, not of the capitalists, and would be under the democratic control of working people themselves. The neighborhood watch committees that have sprung up organically in many areas are an anticipation of what this might look like. This is why any truly meaningful effort to disband or disarm the police can only result from a mass struggle to form a workers' government. Neighborhood self-defense committees made up of union workers, organized and organized workers, the unemployed, and students would be an essential component of this. This would mark the beginning of what Marxists refer to as dual power, the embryo of a future workers' power in opposition to the state of the capitalists. In an incipient form, we've already seen committees like this emerging in places like Minneapolis and Seattle. But these need to be generalized, given democratic and accountable structures, and linked up at the local, regional, and national levels. The symptomatic importance of these kinds of self-defense committees, and even of self-declared police-free autonomous zones emerging in the United States, cannot be overstated. But only by mobilizing the full force of the labor movement and the broader working class can the workers take on the power of the state, their provocateurs, and the right-wing militias. The working class has created mass organizations in the form of unions, over 14 million strong. Organized labor with its vast network of members, meeting spaces, media, and more is in a unique position to help facilitate and coordinate the extension of such committees everywhere. Already, many union workers have played a role in the struggle by refusing to drive buses filled with police or, or, or people that have been arrested. Some longshore workers and teamsters have organized work stoppages to commemorate George Floyd, and many individual union members have played an active role in the protests and in neighborhood defense. However, the leadership of the labor movement has done nothing even approximating the role it could and should play in this movement. The leaders of the major unions in the AFL-CIO should be at the forefront of this struggle. As an example, organized labor has the power to organize and carry out a general strike, and we can be sure that that would get the attention of the ruling class. And in the context of the United States, a general strike would do more than just get attention. It would bluntly pose the question of which class should rule society. 
Labor is also in a unique position to decisively shatter the rotten two-party system by breaking immediately with both the Democrats and the Republicans and building a mass workers' party. All of this could be accompanied by campaigns to organize the unorganized. After decades of crisis and stagnation, there is more support for unions and interest in belonging to a union today than there has been for a very long time. Unfortunately, most of the current labor leaders have limited themselves to mere platitudes and have instead focused their energy on electing Joe Biden and the Democrats. But let's not forget that George Floyd was murdered under a Democratic mayor, a Democratic senator, a Democratic governor, a Democratic county prosecutor, and a Democratic state attorney general. Nor should we forget that not only Biden, but also Bernie Sanders have come out publicly against defunding police, something they can agree on with Donald Trump. For his part, Biden wants to give even more money to the police to help them reform, and he suggests that under his administration, cops could be trained to shoot people in the legs instead of in the heart. Do we really need any other reasons to dem-exit immediately and build a mass working-class socialist party? As far as the police unions affiliated with the AFL-CIO, they have long defended and covered up the rampant racism and abuse of power within their ranks. These organizations function more like rackets or cartels, using their importance to the ruling class as leverage to defend their own, including many racist sociopaths. As the movement to fight police brutality continues to broaden, the police unions are playing an overwhelmingly reactionary role in holding back organized labor from unleashing its full potential. Now, could the inclusion of these associations have represented a potential point of pressure by the broader working class on the capitalist state apparatus? This was undoubtedly a possibility in the course of a dramatic escalation of the class struggle. After all, there have been numerous examples of the ranks of the police fracturing or being partially immobilized under the pressure of the masses in the context of revolutionary situations around the world. But the starting point of the Marxist method is the living reality of the class struggle as it actually unfolds, not abstract formulations or one-size-fits-all positions, regardless of time and place. A tipping point has been reached, and if we are to harness the massive untapped potential of the working class, the national and local labor leaders should take action and unceremoniously show the cop unions the way out the door. But let's be clear. Even if the police unions were to be ejected from the AFL-CIO, it wouldn't absolve the labor leaders of their negligence in class collaborationist policies. Instead of using their power and resources to mobilize their millions of members on the streets, they've issued tepid proclamations of solidarity in the abstract. Instead of filling the streets with the heavy battalions of the working class to defy the curfews, to defend the demonstrators from the police, from provocateurs, and from extreme right militias, they've pinned all their hopes on the November elections. Instead of helping to facilitate the extension of neighborhood self-defense committees across the country, they've issued abstract condemnations of the violence and destruction of property without explicitly pointing out who is responsible for the vast majority of these actions. And instead of painstakingly preparing for a successful all-out general strike, AFL-CIO President Richard Trumpka merely decries the forces of hate and calls for justice in the abstract. As for Liz Schuler, the second highest officer of the AFL-CIO and the possible heir to Trumpka, she recently said that rather than separating police uh, unions from the Federation, maybe police unions should adopt, quote, codes of excellence in order to, quote, create culture change in those unions. 
as if, as if the problem was codes of excellence in a society divided into classes. This is just one expression of how out of touch these leaders are with the rank and file. Compare this to the action of hundreds of thousands of ordinary workers, both union and non-union, who have started to take the fight to improve their lives into their own hands. We've seen an inspiring revival of the strike over the last few years, starting with the teachers and nurses, and now spreading like wildfire among essential workers during the pandemic. Over 400 wildcat strikes have been recorded since March, and this is just a hint of what's to come. In the final analysis, the main reason the labor leadership is playing such a cowardly and passive role is that they see no alternative to the capitalist system and have absolutely no confidence in the working class winning political and economic power. The Marxists, on the other hand, are more confident than ever in the power of the working class to fundamentally change society. American capitalism has racism and white supremacy baked into its very foundations. To sweep away this garbage, the working class can trust only its own forces and organizations. A mass working class socialist party, once it comes into being, will represent a historic leap forward in the class struggle. It would lead and coordinate even larger demonstrations. It would combine the demand for a workers' government with action, including a general strike, but also dozens of other strikes and other mobilizations of the working class. In the process of building for a successful general strike, working class confidence and unity in the fight against racism would be forged in practice. A mass workers' party would also fight for across-the-board improvements in the quality of life of the majority. In other words, it would fight for socialism, a society of full employment, higher wages with a dramatically shorter work week, quality housing for all, as well as universal health care, education, and more. Once in power, a workers' government would launch a massive program of useful public works at union wages starting in the neighborhoods of highest unemployment, where people could be hired to build quality homes, parks, recreation area, roads, schools, hospitals, etc. Overnight, it would eliminate wage discrimination and theft of every type. Over the last three weeks, we've seen the willingness of hundreds of thousands of people to brave brutal police repression and even the threat of military intervention. This shows the enormous power of the working class once it starts to move. But we have to understand that mass protests alone are not enough to fundamentally change society. If the workers do not also build political representation in the form of our own political party, and if we do not assert our power to withhold our labor, the movement will inevitably ebb at a certain point, and the ruling class will be emboldened for a counterattack in whatever form that may take. This is why we in the International Marxist Tendency say, to fight killer cops, we have to fight capitalism. We're for working class unity. We can trust only in our own organizations and our own strength. An injury to one is an injury to all is an old adage of the labor movement for a reason. The way forward is by building democratically elected and accountable neighborhood self-defense committees everywhere. Organized labor has to throw its weight into this movement. It has to facilitate the linking up of the neighborhood committees. It has to call a general strike and bring the country to a halt. Down with Trump, down with the Republicans, and down with the Democratic Party. In the next historical period, we have to build a mass working class socialist party and a workers' government to replace the capitalist state, its police, and other institutions of class rule. Comrades and friends, racism is not merely ideological or interpersonal, but institutional and systemic. This means that the capitalist system is inherently racist, and neither the system or its state can be merely wished away, ignored, or abolished overnight. People used to say that American workers were too conservative, too backwards, too ignorant, 
too racist, too whatever to fight back against capitalism. And yet, here we are. You can see on your TV screens, on your, on your social media feed, exactly what's going on right here in the most powerful imperialist country on earth. Events are moving quickly and consciousness is transforming at lightning speed. The working class has enormous potential power and can turn the world upside down in the next historical period if it mobilizes and acts as a class in and for itself. But along with audacity, we need organization. As Malcolm X famously said, we're not outnumbered, we're out-organized. The deep-seated revolutionary traditions of this country are only just beginning to revive. The U.S. has an incredible history of revolution and class struggle. We must study the history of the American Revolution and the Civil War as part of our preparation for the third American Revolution, the Socialist Revolution. There's two sides to the barricades and it's time to pick a side. This is no time for sitting on the fence or for standing on the sidelines. This is the perspective the IMT is fighting for. I invite you to join us to help us lay the foundations for a mass working class socialist party armed with revolutionary Marxist ideas and to fight for the victory of the socialist revolution in our lifetime. That's it for this episode of the Socialist Revolution Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'd like to give a big shout out to all the IMT comrades around the world who have thrown themselves energetically into these mass protests, starting with the comrades in Minneapolis. And a revolutionary salute to everyone braving coronavirus to fight for what's right. I'd also like to give a big thanks to Laura Brown, our audiovisual engineer, whose hard work makes these episodes possible. If you like what you heard today, please share, subscribe, And consider giving us a five-star rating, which will help other listeners find us. Or consider making a donation to the International Marxist Tendency or subscribing to Socialist Revolution magazine. Better yet, why not join the IMT and help make socialism in our lifetime a reality? Again, you can learn more about all of this at socialistrevolution.org. Have a great week. Stay safe and healthy. Keep fighting the good fight. And long live the working class. (laughs) 